verses in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we come across a very interesting story uh, here tonight. Like uh, we finished up on Wednesday night, we, uh, we discussed, you know, David killing Uriah. And not only did he kill Uriah, he also killed the other soldiers um, that he put in that position uh, throughout that time. But the last verse we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 4, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. I don't ever want God mad at me, do you? But God is angry at David. And, and I would imagine that at this point, that God has dealing with David uh, with this, okay? The Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. It's just differently the way the, whole, the Holy Spirit actually was involved in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit has been involved in the creation of the world and dealing with mankind. It would come in and out. But in the New Testament believers, he came, he comes and resides inside of us, okay? But David is being dealt with by the Holy Spirit, but... Um, the Bible says in chapter 12, verse one, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. I want to stop right there. The Lord sent Nathan to David. So I think God is dealing with David about the sin of Uriah, killing the soldiers, the sex, uh, and stealing Bathsheba from Uriah. You know, it's interesting that there's been times where you will have to go to another believer for correction. It is a terrible terrible thing when you have to approach another believer. Many of you read Matthew chapter 18 when it talks about, and about halfway through that passage, when it talks about the um, correction or discipline that has to take place sometimes in a church. It says, you know, oftentimes, you know, if your brother sins against you, go to him in private, show him his fault. You know, if he listens to you, you've gained a brother. Well, in the earliest manuscripts, there is one word that is not in Matthew chapter 18 that people often try to slide in. If your brother sins against you in the earliest manuscripts, we never see the word you in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. It just says, if your brother sins, that changes it, doesn't it? Because oftentimes, well, it wasn't against me, so I'm not going to say anything. And so, but if it's your brother sins that you go to him in private and talk this out. And so here, let me go ahead and tell you, Nathan is practicing Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 here against David with David. And now I like how he starts this conversation. The last part of this verse in chapter 12, verse one, and he came to him and said, there were two men in a city, one wealthy and the other one poor, you know, <laughs> This is the second time we see the prophet Nathan. If you remember the first, we only see Nathan four times in all the scriptures. And Nathan is known for Nathan right here in, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is where Nathan gets uh, the most recognized. This is where everybody knows Nathan. They would go to this passage right here. But the first time was when he told David that he would have a lineage that would last forever through Jesus Christ. And then we see two other times. The last time is when he's on his deathbed. But right here is when Nathan is known for who he's known for. And he starts off with a story. He said, there's two men in the city, one wealthy and the other one poor. Now, who does this sound like? What other teacher does this sound like? Who else spoke in parables? Jesus did. And it's interesting that God is putting this on Nathan's heart. And he says, hey, let me tell you a story, David. And David's thinking... Okay. He said, could you hurry? I got a kingdom to run. 
Well, if you just give me a second, David, I, I like to tell you a story. Okay, all right, go on with it. In verse 2, it says, And a wealthy man had great many flocks and herds. What is it that you would say a person is rich? If you look at a person, person is rich, I, I've told this story a couple times to uh, uh, several different people. But um, I used to paint cars and I would do some stuff on the side years ago. And uh, where the Ferrari and Lamborghini place was up there off of Wendover, I was painting a Porsche and uh, I had to go to that place and pick up a Porsche mirror. And but I was I was walking in the parts department and I and I had to slide down a group of cars. It was like five or six cars and they were all the same exact color color. And I really didn't pay attention. I was just trying not to scratch them. And I looked down, it was Lamborghini. And then I looked in the window and it was $820,000. And I turned and I said, you sold many of those this year? He said, we sold six this month. I said, so my next thought was, so y'all ship them all over the world, ship them all over the nation. He said, oh, no, that was just for Greensboro. You know, about two years later, after seeing that, I thought, I've never seen one of those cars. These people have them sitting in their garage, never driving them. I thought, what a waste, right? How do you measure wealth? Somebody has a big house, lots of property, or somebody could be just extremely in debt. It seems like it got a lot of money, right? Well, we, we see people, we measure wealth by different things. Well, here in the, in the Old Testament, they measured wealth by how many animals you had. And that's why when a young man purchased a bride, they would, it would cost a ton because they'd bring lots of animals and camels and sheep and oxen. And, and that's how they paid for the bride. And so here's a very wealthy man and he had a tremendous amount of animals and probably a tremendous amount of land, but all the animals that he had. Verse three, but the poor man had nothing at all except for one little lamb, which he brought and he bought and he nurtured. It grew up together with him and his children. It would eat scraps from him and drink from his cup and lie in his lap and, and was like a daughter to him. Boy, Nathan is just pouring it on. Some of you have pets. You grew up with pets. You have your favorite pet. You, we were talking about uh, with Phyllis Baldwin uh, today. We've both had bloodhounds. She's had far more than I have. God bless her. But uh, I think a bloodhound came in her uh, with no collar, came in her yard yesterday. And she said it was just fun to sit there and watch and, and see that bloodhound. I loved my bloodhound. And I and you some of you have a pet that you allow to come in and, and it lays in your lap and, and you have probably most likely if you've made one trip to the vet, you have spent thousands of dollars on this animal, right? To make sure that they are okay. And Nathan is painting this picture that this poor man had this lamb. Now this was very, very usual uh usual. This was not unusual for uh, poor people to take instead of having a dog or a cat, they would they would get a lamb and they would raise it and it would become the family pet. And it would come and it would lay in the bed with them and it would it would drink from the cup that they were drinking from. It would eat from the from the table that they were eating from. It would become one of the family. And, and Nathan's painting this picture and David's like, yeah, I, I'm fully aware. Let's go. I'm fully aware. This is what happens. 
And it says that not only did it grew up and it drank from his cup and it ate from his table, it was with the children and the children loved this pet. They would just, they would cuddle this pet. They would talk to this pet. They would sing to this pet. I mean, you know, it's, it's on and on and on. In verse four, but now a visitor came to the wealthy man and he could not bring himself to take for any of his own flock. To prepare the traveler who had come to see him, take him for a meal. So he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. And so now he's, he's now getting back to David. And he said, hey, th this rich man, he has all these animals out there. He does not know one of their names. He doesn't have any of them names. Only people who have association with these animals are his workers but yet he, he, he went to the poor man who raised this one lamb from birth and it's one of the family pets. He said he chose not to pull from his own herd, but he went to the poor man's um, uh, house and, and stole his lamb. It was theft. And he took it. Now, what is David, what is Nathan doing? He's saying, Nathan... He said, David, he didn't go to his own herd. He went to somebody else's. Now, I'm not trying to paint wives or concubines as a herd, but this is what Nathan is doing. He said he went to somebody else's house and he took it and he took something that wasn't his to take. I thought about this. I thought about how appropriate in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, when Paul is discussing whose body is it? Whose body is whose? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband also does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Wow, if we can get this through to all of our young people, right? But there's going to be a day where they are giving themselves away to somebody. And you are not to give yourself away to just anybody. And until the ring is on the finger and they step across that, that, that marital bound, that you are not to give yourself away. It is somebody else's property. And I'm, if we can get this through our young people, the amount of pornography that's pouring into the homes each and every day, but not even from through the children, there was an estimate done uh, that I read in a Southern Baptist magazine and, uh, and it was back when you could get the pay for per view, you, you know, before the smartphones that they said every time there was a pastor's conference in this particular hotel, the pornography use went sky high. If we could train the young people to say, look, it may be 10 years from now, it may be 15 years from now, but you're giving yourself your body to somebody else. It's not yours. Don't give it to them. Don't give it to them. And this is what he's doing. And, and Paul paints this picture. He's not saying that it's okay to sexually advance, to take advantage of somebody. That's what he's saying. 
He's saying your body doesn't belong to you. And this is what Nathan's doing. He says, you took property that is not yours to take. Even when he looked upon this woman and lusted after her, he says, you looked at somebody's property that was not yours to look at. In verse five, then David's anger burned greatly against the man. He still don't see who it is. And said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this certainly deserves to die. And so now he sees this whole picture of this wealthy man and this poor man. And he sees this wealthy man walking into this poor man's house, jerking this lamb out from underneath this poor man's daughter's arms and taking it and slaughtering and making veal parmesan for his his weary traveler. And the whole time, Nathan is pointing the finger at him, is he not? And saying, you walked into the poor man's house and you took something that didn't belong to you. Even though you had all these others to choose from. All the concubines you have, all the wives that you have. He said, all this to choose from. And you went to the poor man's house. And David said, this man deserves to die. Now, as king, he has this authority, does he not? But listen what Leviticus 20.10 says. If there is any man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. David's condemning him his own self. He's exactly right. He's condemning his own self to death and he didn't even know it. He's looking and he's looking at his self-righteousness. And he's saying, this man deserves to die. And Leviticus says, you're right, David, you do deserve to die. And so does Bathsheba. Bathsheba wasn't raped. She wasn't coerced. She agreed to this. And so did David. Verse 6, so he must make restitution for the lamb four times over. Oh, it gets better. Since he did this thing and had no compassion. <laughs> David's like speaking his life. He must make restitution fourfold. Now, David's not just making up a number, you know, oh, okay, fourfold. Okay, that sounds good, David. You're the lawmaker. But actually, David is simply quoting scripture. Exodus 2.22.1 says, If someone steals an ox and sheep and slaughters it and sells it, he shall pay five oxen and for the oxen four sheep for the sheep. Four times because of the sheep. What did the, what did the rich man steal from the poor man? A sheep. He said, you'll pay four times. He's simply following the law. And then he says, since he had no compassion. How better terminology was David describing himself did David have compassion on Uriah at which point when he invited him when he invited him in from the battle and said go sleep with your wife and Uriah didn't and he got upset and he said tried it again then when he got him drunk how about the compassion when he put the death note in his hand and he sent him back to war and he and he killed those other men at what point did david have compassion on uriah and he says this man didn't have compassion so therefore he deserves to die he sent uriah to the very front line and he wasn't one of the strongest men so he should have never been on the front line to begin with then verse 7 Nathan didn't say to David, you 
yourself are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel is saying. It is I who anointed you as king over Israel. It is I who rescued you from the hand of Saul. Wow. As David's temper is flaring up and I imagine he's yelling out loud and he's telling me, who, who is this? You tell me this man's name. And he's getting all excited. And finally, this Nathan drops the hammer on him. You are the man. You were the one who walked into Uriah's house and you were the one that overstepped that matrimonial uh, uh, boundary. And you were the one who stole her. You stole a body that wasn't yours. And then Nathan goes back to the goodness of God. He goes, David, how could you do this? Let me give you some things that God has done for you, David. He says he's anointed you to be king. He said, do you remember that you spent 20 years in the wilderness and I anointed you, I had you as king, but I anointed you king at the age of 13 years old. He says, I was the one who did this. He says, do you also remember that I rescued from, hand, from, from the hand of Saul how many times you could have been killed? And then he continues on in verse 8. I gave you your master's house. I put your master's wives into the care. I gave you the house of Israel of Judah. And if I had been too little, if I, I would have added to you many more things. Then he continues on. He said, I gave you Saul's house. He said, not only this, I gave you Saul's wives. He said, David, you had your own herd. You had your own women. Why would you go after somebody else's? You know what? We could ask that question every day, could we not? Why are you going after something that's not yours? Why are you looking at something that's not yours? Why? Why? You have yours. Don't go stealing somebody else's. And then he says, not only this, he said, remember the king of Tyre? I brought this up several times. The king of Tyre, I laid it on his heart. He bought his best masons. He bought his best uh, woodworking men. And they built you an entire palace. Do you remember that, David? Isn't it amazing that Nathan went and God pushed on his places on his heart and he reverts back to God's goodness. David, this is what you did to God's goodness. I want to tell you this. I don't know about you, but we talk about giving evil for good and good for evil and all this stuff. But has anybody ever turned something that you've done good and turned and done evil against you? And God's reverting back and saying, look at all the stuff I did for you. But then he says this. I would have added many more. You know what this looks like? This is kind of where it ends. And you know what I see? I see it kind of end for David at this point. The blessings that he was receiving over and over and over again. I'm going to tell you, we don't see this. He dies about 75 years old. We don't see this kind of blessings again. Because God said, I would have.
what is he saying? He's saying, David, the more I did for you, the more ingratitude you showed to me. Have you ever poured into somebody's life year after year only for them to walk away or turn against you? Some of you have children that you have poured into. You have spent so much money on our grandchildren and they have ultimately disowned you, walked away from you, and you could not have done one more thing for them. And you had a list a mile long of all the things you did for them, and it was nothing but an attitude of ingratitude. And this is what he's saying. He said, David, you are so ungrateful for what I did that you had to go try to get more on your own. Verse 9. The first part of this is why have you despised the word of the Lord? I love this word. I spent quite a bit of time on this word. I know that probably surprises y'all, but the word is baza. The word despise is baza. It means to be considered worthless. Now this is, this adds a whole nother meaning to this phrase. He said, why have you considered worthless the word of the Lord? Hmm. You know, David was considered worthless. So as I looked up this word and everywhere it was used in, in the Old Testament, it was interesting because in 1 Samuel chapter 17, do you remember when, when David was being chosen to be king and they were like, hey, go get that one. No, it's not that one. Go get that one. It's not that one. Go get that one. Do you have anybody else? Well, I got this little runt in the field. And when he came in, the Bible says that he was considered or looked at or despised but there was another time do you remember when Goliath he was standing before Goliath and, and he's standing before this nine foot creature and he's laughing at him and the Bible says when the Philistine looked and saw David he viewed him as worthless for he was only a youth he was reddish and with handsome appearance he was only he was worthless you were nothing to me you were nothing but a speck in the ground David was viewed this way another time. I didn't put this in your notes. Do you remember when they were bringing the, the Ark of the Covenant in? We talked about this in 2 Samuel 6. And David was dancing before the Lord. And remember, this was a march. This was something everybody was doing. And he danced so hard, he did what? He danced his robe apart, off. Do you remember what Michael said to him? This is what she said. Then it happened as the Ark of the Covenant was coming to the city. The Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down through her window, saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she considered him worthless in her heart. Same word. Goliath saw David as worthless. Michael saw David as worthless. Now David looked at God's word as worthless. Nothing. It didn't matter. Same word. Wow. Can you imagine? Golly, that sounds just like Romans chapter one, doesn't it? That sounds just like Romans chapter one, the people of the world going, it didn't matter. It don't matter. It don't matter what you say, God. It only matters what I feel and I believe. That's what matters. And Nathan said, you considered God's word, worthless. 
The second part of verse 9, it says, By doing evil in his sight, you have struck and killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife as your wife, and you have slaughtered him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. He says, you have done this evil in your sight. How do you know you consider God's word worthless? How do you know somebody considers God's word worthless? If they do evil, God's word is worthless. If they do right, then they take value in the word of God. That's how you know. And he says, here's what you've done. You've killed Uriah. You've taken Bathsheba to be your wife. And you killed him and the others as your enemy. Well, you know what? It's something interesting, and I don't understand this. Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. I don't have an answer for this, but why did Nathan add, and he, you took Bathsheba to be your wife? Now, Uriah's already dead. Uriah's gone. But he still is saying, you should have not done it. So even after Uriah had died, he still considered taking Bathsheba, his wife, not appropriate. Or maybe he's looking at it and saying, you stole something that wasn't yours. Maybe he's looking at the whole picture. I don't know how he's looking at this. He says, you murder them. You took somebody that didn't belong to you. And the very people that killed Uriah are some of the most wicked people in the land. Do you remember what I talked about the Ammonites? Do you remember their God, Moet? Remember his hands? He's, he's made out of a certain metal and they would build a fire and they would lay those babies on those burning red hands and listen to the screams of those babies. He said, those are the people that you allow to murder Uriah. The very enemy of God. And you did it on purpose. Verse 10. Now then the sword shall never leave your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. He says it again. But he says something more important. He says the sword will never leave your house. I'm not going to make you turn to all of these, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you there's four different occasions here. Do you remember what happened? David said, oh, that man should pay fourfold for what he does. David pays fourfold for what he did. You're going to we're going to talk about in just a little that. The baby dies that Bathsheba gives birth to. God causes a sickness to come upon it. Then we see. The death of his next child. Ammon. Then Absalom. Then Adonijah. All of these deaths are a result of David taking something that didn't belong to him. And he said, the sword will never leave your house. The sun will fight against the sun. In verse 11, this is what the Lord says. Behold, I am going to raise up evil against you from your household. And I will even take your wives before your eyes and I will give them to your companion. And he will sleep with the wives right in broad daylight. Wow. He said, I'm going to raise up evil in your sight. He said, everything was on your side, David, up until this point. He said, but now it has turned. Turned. 
that Absalom, his son, is going to turn against David. We'll get into that story, and he's going to try to take over the kingdom. He says, but when Absalom is David, is going to start running for his life. And Absalom is going to take David's wives, and he's going to put them on the roof. And he is going to sleep with every one of those women out in the open for everybody to see. And Nathan is simply doing this. He's predicting this is what's going to happen. Prophesying this is what's going to happen. Thus saith the Lord. Because when Absalom sleeps with David's wives, this is what it shows. It shows that I have defeated the king. I am now king. Very sick passage there. Basically, they just put a little tent over these and he one after the another. He has sex with these with David's wives. And you know what the amazing thing is? David killed 40,000 people in our last story before all of this. David could not defend one man and take care of his wives because he was on the run. When God drops the hammer on David, he does it in an incredible manner. Verse 12, indeed, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in open daylight. David tried to hide it. We know he did. He tried to get his servants to hide it. He tried to get Joab to hide it. And God says, I'm going to do this openly. Absalom's going to sleep with David's wives openly on the roof. We see, we're going to see that in 2 Samuel chapter 16. That is a sickening passage. I'm going to be even sick talking about it. Did God cause Absalom to sleep with David's wives or did he allow it? See, I don't understand sovereignty and you don't understand sovereignty and we don't understand predestination and predetermined. We don't understand it. But here's the thing. God already knew all of this would take place. He's not causing Absalom to sleep with David's wives because some people struggle with this very passage. So God made Absalom sleep with David's wives. No, God already sovereignly knew that that's what was going to happen. And he just told it through the mouth of Nathan. Because if God's caused Absalom to sleep with David's wives, then that would be what? Sin. He's just saying this is what's going to happen. Verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Boom. Immediately. David falls to his knees and he says something right here. It's a great example of what happens and it's the example of what we must do. He said, I, let's just start there. How many times you've heard people say, we, well, we, we just didn't know better. Or, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't realize that that was, that was kind of the rule. And then he says, have sin. He didn't say, well, you know, God, I made a mistake. It was just an error. He says, I broke your law. And then he says it was against you. He made sure it was clear that it wasn't against anybody else, but ultimately all sin was against God. And he said, God, I have sinned against you. And the last part of this, and Nathan said immediately, the Lord also has allowed your sin to pass and you shall not die. Immediately, mercy and grace was given to David. You see, up to this point, David was going to lose his life because he took something that wasn't his. He was going to kill him. This 
is what that word meant. David, God was angry at David. Immediately, mercy and grace was bestowed upon David. But I want to tell you what, I've thought about this a lot. When he says, your sin shall pass, you shall not die. I wonder if David has ever thought, I probably would rather face death than to face the consequences of what is getting ready to come. Because I want, you're getting ready to see the mourning in David's life of when, what happens with Absalom, what happens with the baby, what happens with when, he, when, his, when his own daughter is raped, right? By the son, right? You're getting ready to see the grief that's getting ready to enter into David's life. And I've thought this, I wonder if David said it would have been better if I would have died. See, the consequences of this are still going to happen even though the forgiveness is granted. See, people often don't want that to happen. They want the consequences to be gone and the sin to be forgiven all at the same time. But we can choose our sin. We just can't choose our consequences. Verse 14, almost done. However, since by this deed you have shown utter disrespect to the Lord, the child himself who is born shall certainly die. The disrespect, once again, is it's um, saying this, that you have considered the word of the Lord worthless, once again. In the, in the King James, it says, and not only this, you have given occasion for the, the worldly, the enemy of God, to blaspheme the name of God. He said, because you're supposed to be a righteous man standing before God, you're killing your own men, you're sleeping with other women that's not yours, taking their wives. He said, now they're blaspheming the Lord. Who is the Lord? Wow. Have you ever thought about that in relation to our lives? That as people's looking at our lives and saying, they're a Christian? And he says, the child will die. That was the first of the four payments of his sin. You know, recently there was a, a car wreck here locally and the man who was driving it was drunk and he killed a, a, a man who they had a, they were, the couple had not been married that long. Some of you probably knew him. And I thought, once that man became sober and he woke up in jail, I wonder what he thought when he thought, I'm getting ready to spend the rest of my life in this prison and I killed somebody else. I killed somebody's husband or son. I killed somebody's uncle. I did this and I can't take this back. I thought, David is responsible for the child's death. It's his fault. And for the next 40 years. He has to know that that was his fault. And last in 15, then Nathan went to his house and later the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David. So that he was very sick. I thought about when Nathan walked away. The last time he gave David news, it was that there's going to be a redeemer and he's going to take the throne forever. And the next time Nathan walks away, he just condemned four deaths on David and went through this whole process. I imagine Nathan walked away bawling. I would have been, I would have been crying like a baby. Because when somebody else breaks God's law and we're, when they break it as a brother, we also are broken along with them. The Bible says the Lord did strike the child. Remember this. Just because a child dies or just because a son or daughter dies it has nothing to do with the sin of the parent. 
I'm so sick of hearing that. When there's something that's going on in your life, well, is it a result of sin in your life? Is it a result of somebody? No. Sometimes God allows those things because of something else he's trying to do. So don't immediately think, well, that's somebody's sin. And people often go to this passage right here to try to teach this. Not all sickness is a relation to direct sin. In this case, it was. But sometimes it's just this is the will of God. And what he's going to do through it. We'll also look at David's confession in another passage here later on. But this is one of the lowest passages. I'm ready to move on from this passage. But this is very... um, uh, it's, it doesn't help my spirit as you look at this, but I'll tell you this, this is something we all need and how we think of God as a loving, merciful, kind God, and he is, but this is, he does not, he does not wink at our sin. Father, we love you today. And what jumps out at me on this passage is when people try to take something that's not theirs, either through pornography or the actual act of, taking somebody else's spouse or even looking at them. God, I pray that we instill this in our kids' lives and our grandkids' lives that they wait and don't take something that's not theirs and don't give away something that they were going to give away. Father, I pray for, we know that there's consequences to our sin and God, we thank you for that mercy and forgiveness. God, we, we are looking forward to the day where you call us home and we don't have to deal with this any longer. God, I pray that you would help us to continue to live each day to glorify you, to stay away from these sins that so easily beset us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. Thank you for those who are singing and helping continuing this along until we find a youth pastor. God bless you. Good night.